Section 6 of The Age of Elizabeth by Mandel Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book 1, Chapter 4. France, Spain, England, and the Papacy, 1555-1558. In the year 1555, when the Diet of Augsburg confirmed the religious settlement in Germany, Charles V again found, as he had done before, that the policy of the Pope was guided by other motives than a desire for the spread of Catholicism. Pope Paul IV, Giovanni Piero Carafa, was a Neapolitan by birth. He was of the age of eighty, and his mind was filled with the old Italian patriotism of his youthful days, when Italy had not yet fallen under foreign rule. He hated the Spaniards and was determined to spare no pains in driving them out of Naples. He accordingly hastened to make an alliance with the French king for this purpose. Charles V, though not old in years, being only fifty-six, felt himself worn out in health and vigor, and shrunk from the prospect of another long war. He determined, therefore, to resign his power to his son Philip and spend his remaining years in solitude. Charles had long ago formed this determination. His reign of thirty-six years had been one of ceaseless activity. He had never remained more than a few months in any one place, but had hastened as need required from one part of his vast dominions to another. To him, as to his son Philip, power brought laborious duties which must be conscientiously fulfilled. Wishing to spend the last years of his life in quiet, and thinking that he had done all he could do and that the time was favorable for his successor, Charles resigned in 1556, the Netherlands, Spain, and his possessions in Italy to his son Philip. He then retired to the monastery of Juste in Estramadura, where he had prepared a house suitable to his needs. There he lived till the end of 1558, engaged alternately in politics and devotion, eagerly watching the course of events in Europe and helping Philip by his counsels. War soon broke out in Italy. The Pope quarreled with the Spaniards and called the French to his assistance, but both in Italy and in France the cause of Philip prevailed. England was induced to join the war against France, and the Earl of Pembroke led 10,000 men to join Philip's army in the Netherlands. On August 10, 1557, the French were defeated decisively in an attempt to relieve the important town of Saint-Quentin. The French army in Italy was hastily recalled, and the Pope, finding himself left to the mercy of Philip's viceroy in Naples, the celebrated Duke of Alva, was compelled to make peace. He received, however, the most favorable terms. The conquering Alva knelt with the deepest reverence before the enemy he had overcome. It was impossible for the Spaniards to be long at enmity with the Pope. This war between Spain and the Pope had, however, important influence on England. If the Pope hated Philip, it was natural that some part of his hatred should fall on Philip's wife. Partly to annoy Mary, Paul IV urged the restoration of the church lands in England and revoked the legatine powers of Cardinal Poole. Poole had succeeded Cranmer as Archbishop of Canterbury, and to him as much as to any man was the papal restoration in England due. But Paul IV had always been opposed to Poole, 
for Poole, when at Rome, had sympathized with many of the Protestant doctrines, particularly with that of justification by faith only. Poole was now dealt with as a suspected heretic, and a Franciscan friar of no reputation, the Queen's confessor, was made papal legate in his stead. Mary saw that an attempt to recognize such a man as legate in England would be very disastrous. With something of her father's spirit, she threatened the old penalties of Premuniri to anyone who should introduce the bull into England. The Pope pressed the matter no farther, but Mary and Poole felt sadly the position in which they were placed. They were thwarted by the very power which it was the one object of their lives to serve, and they knew that the sight of this house divided against itself was destroying the confidence of the English people. But Mary's government soon received a severe shock. The French were anxious to strike some blow which might compensate for their defeat at Saint-Quentin, and the decayed defences and scanty garrison of Calais invited their attack. In the winter of 1557 and 8, Calais was surprised, and the last possession of the English in France was lost. The loss was not in itself important, but the disgrace was deeply felt, for the English claims to France were dear to every Englishman, and war with France on their account had always been popular. Now the last remnant of English conquests was lost, and with it much of England's past glory had fallen away. The loss of Calais was felt equally by the Queen and the people. From every side disappointment and disaster closed over the last years of Mary's reign. Philip, to whom she was devotedly attached, had willingly left England to administer his wide dominions. Mary's hopes of an heir, who should maintain the Spanish line on the English throne, had been disappointed. By the death of Gardiner she had been deprived of her most faithful minister. Poole, who had so long directed her ecclesiastical policy, had fallen into disgrace with the Pope. Abroad she met with disaster, and at home she was greeted with the murmurs and unconcealed discontent of her people. Mary's reign ended most sadly. Weighed down by disease which made her old before her time, she saw that all her plans had failed. She could not believe that plans to restore the religion in which she had such fervent faith could possibly fail to meet with a divine favor. If they seemed to fail, it was only because they were carried out half-heartedly. Catholicism must be more firmly established, and the Protestant heresy must be rooted out. So Mary urged religious persecution with greater zeal, and Poole, who was a humane man by nature and always opposed extreme measures, was roused to persecution as a means of proving his orthodoxy. So it was that the persecutions of Mary's later years excited deeper popular disgust. They were urged on with greater zeal by the Queen, just as the mass of the people had felt their first enthusiasm, which alone could make trials and executions tolerable to their conscience, grow cooler by further experience. Mary felt that she was hated by the people, whose best interests she firmly believed she was laboring to further. Anonymous letters were thrown before her and were even hidden in her books of devotion. She died on November 17, 1558, and Poole died within a few hours of his mistress. 
both felt in their last hours that their work was likely to fall to the ground with them. Upon Mary's death, Elizabeth came to the throne without any opposition. The Catholic party could not unite to exclude her, for it was weakened by the war between France and Spain. It was impossible for Philip to rejoice at the accession of Anne Boleyn's daughter to the English throne, but still less could he endure the other possible heir, Mary of Scotland, for she was married to the Dauphin of France, and so her accession would throw England into opposition to Spain. Moreover, Elizabeth's religious views were still a matter of conjecture. She had not expressed herself very strongly on either side, but like the great mass of the people had conformed to the established religion under Edward VI and Mary equally. Her inclinations were toward Protestantism, but she was not fond of extremes. Philip still hoped that she might be won over to his side. He offered her his hand in marriage, and Elizabeth did not at once refuse, as she wished to feel her way at first and avoid difficulties as much as possible. The condition of England was indeed very perilous. The treasury was empty, the revenue was anticipated, and there was a large debt. Trade was languishing, the coinage was debased, and the channel was swarming with pirates. The country was divided by religious struggles and was engaged in a disastrous war with France into which it had been plunged in the interest of Spain. Added to this, Elizabeth's legitimacy was doubted and there was a pretender to the throne. It was clearly necessary to act at first with the greatest prudence and caution. As regards religion, Elizabeth was not anxious to declare herself too soon. On the one hand, she attended the mass service to please the Catholics. On the other hand, she forbade the elevation of the host to please the Protestants. But this impartial conduct was soon made impossible by the conduct of the Pope. Paul IV grew no milder as he grew older and had fallen still more under French influence. When Elizabeth's ambassador announced to him her accession, he answered that Elizabeth, being illegitimate, could not ascend the throne without his consent. It was impertinent on her part to do so. Let her, in the first place, submit her claims to his decision. Elizabeth had now no doubt about her line of action. She could not hope to strengthen herself against France and Scotland by an alliance with Spain, for Philip could not have married her without a dispensation from the Pope, and she was the daughter of a marriage which the papacy could never forgive. To attempt to marry Philip would be to surrender her claim to the English throne into the hands of the Pope. She therefore rejected Philip's offer of marriage and was consequently compelled to agree to peace with France at the price of leaving Calais in their hands. Philip II was desirous of peace with France, for his treasury was empty, and it was hopeless for him to try and crush France entirely. Elizabeth, on her side, was afraid that Spain would make a separate peace and leave her to carry on war with France single-handed. The Peace of Cateau Cambrésis, concluded on April 12, 1559, left France in possession of Calais as well as of Metz, Toul, and Verdun. Philip was content to secure the Alps as the boundary of his Italian possessions by establishing once more the independence of Savoy and Piedmont under their duke. After this peace, Elizabeth's hands were free. 
she was determined henceforth to act independently in political matters, to take her own line of action and maintain it, to trust to her people, and to support her own measures by identifying them with her people's interests. It was in this that the significance of Elizabeth's reign lay. She was obliged by the isolation in which she found herself to throw herself entirely upon her people. Under her, therefore, England became again united and took up once more a leading position among the nations of Europe. End of section 6